Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guests are Rebecca Graff and Tom Ruggieri, and they join me from Fair Share Farm, which is a diversified vegetable farm located in rural Clay County, Missouri, that supplies vegetables for a live culture fermentation facility on the farm, as well as fresh fruit and vegetables for market sales. They farm 20 acres using sustainable practices within the 260-acre Graff family farm. Crops include annual, annual vegetables, strawberries, asparagus, herbs, a flock of 75 laying hens, and a small flock of sheep. In 2020, they reconfigured the farm by constructing over 7,000 linear feet of berms and swales to better manage water on the farm and improve their resiliency. Hundreds of chestnuts, persimmons, hazelnuts, pawpaws, and elderberries were planted as part of this project. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Thanks for Michael. having us, Michael. Absolutely. So, um, Tom, share a little bit about, you know, your background before you uh, became a farmer. Okay. So I, uh, I was an environmental engineer for about 20 years and I lived in upstate New York in Rochester. Um, I kind of tried to drop out several times as I uh, would say I was an environmental engineer, but nobody ever talked about the environment mm. and that kind of frustrated me. And then yeah. I, I joined a CSA in um, maybe 97 or so, and, uh, and then I, I came to, um, to the farm uh, on a work day in 2001, and Rebecca was apprenticing there, um, and we met, and uh, that's uh, kind of hitched our wagons after a while, and that's why we're here. Very cool. And Rebecca, you're, you're, you were, so you were a apprentice there, talked about a little bit, you know, how you got involved. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up on the family farm where we are now. Um, I loved living out here, um, just interacting with the environment um, and the peace and quiet and nature, all the benefits of living in a rural area. And, um, but I never saw like a future as a farmer as a child or a young adult. Uh, so I went off to college, um, got a degree in anthropology. Uh, I was a VISTA uh, volunteer for a while, AmeriCorps VISTA, uh-huh. um, ended up in San Francisco um, and moved into a household that had a farm uh, dropping off their CSA boxes um, on our front steps. And that's really my first introduction to uh, CSA and the idea of, um, you know, being able to direct market produce, organic produce to people who care. Um, and that really got me started on the journey to learn how to grow vegetables. Cause I did not grow up growing a garden or my mom had a flower garden. We were very much a conventional kind of farm family with like uh-huh. my dad having an off farm job and just kind of getting on the tractor on the weekends and, 
Um, you know, farming was not presented as a career option. Um, so anyway, I didn't have any experience. So I started looking at apprenticeships and ended up at a very awesome uh, organic uh, farm outside of Rochester run by Elizabeth Henderson, who Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. To me at the time had written a handbook on CSA farming. And I just happened to be lucky enough to plop down um, on this beautiful farm and with these amazing vegetable growers. And I learned so much. And then yeah, my love of my life plopped down <laughs> also like first uh CSA work day. There he was, like yeah, showing off his knife skills and uh yeah, the rest is <laughs> Um, so then, uh, Tom, obviously you've had to learn, well, both of you have had to learn, you know, the ins and outs of organic farming after you kind of met, what was kind of the, the next part of your journey? Um, I guess kind of, you know, we were building community. The whole idea was that we would have uh, a CSA that was going to be what we were building towards to kind of be the, um, foundation of the farm. Mm -hmm. So so that was a, a big step to, you know, start out growing and showing ourselves that we could grow stuff the first year we just sold at market. And then we had a 30 member CSA and then a 50 and then a 75 and then a hundred. And once we got up to a hundred, which was kind of our goal was like, well, this still isn't really enough um, income and mm -hmm. everything to do this. So that's how we kind of got started. Um, I think that, you know, Rebecca can talk about the farm. You know, we came back to um, uh, her family farm and she can kind of talk about that transition. Yeah, it was, uh, needed a lot of work. Uh, mm. No one had been farming here for quite a while. It had been leased out, kind of share crop situation with corn and soybean farmers. Yeah. Um, all the outbuildings were falling down. The house hadn't been lived in. There were dead animals in it. You know, like it was oh just, yeah. you know, like nature was reclaiming. Uh -huh. And so it took years for us to did most of the work ourselves of, you know, cleaning things out, repairing things, uh, gutted the house, rebuilt the house. Um, so I would say the first 10 years, like half of our time was spent just on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was, it was great to have the CSA members. Um, we always had a very active CSA based on the piecework model in upstate New York um, of, you know, uh, a work requirement. Mm -hmm. So everybody that joined the farm had to put in some hours, whether it was coming to the farm and helping us, you know, pick green beans or, you know, helping us repair a building if they had those kinds of skills or helping out with distribution or organizing like the work days being like the administrative side of things. So um, having that participation from the beginning, I mean, it really helped us, you know, we wouldn't have been able to do everything <laughs> that we had to do in the early days. Um, yeah, that, for sure. So now tell me, where is, um, so you're in Clay County. Where is that in Missouri? Yeah, we're only 45 minutes from downtown Kansas City. So our, you oh, know, okay. that's, our, that's our main market. We are on what uh, are, some people would say peri-urban at this point. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, lots 
with houses on them that, you know, maybe they have some free range chickens or whatever, but people are commuting into the urban area for, for work. And that's, you know, that's what my family did when I was growing up here too. Um, mm -hmm. But it is rural. We're right next to a state park and, you know, there's 280 acres here that we sit on with not that many houses right around us, but, you know, there, there's every year there's another house popping up. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you started off with the farm and growing vegetables mainly at the beginning. Was that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Our interest was really in, you know, growing food that we wanted to eat and that our members were interested in it. In. so, you know, we, and we're very committed to like organic practices as well, but you know, a big reason why Tom agreed to uh, come along on this journey was he really loves to cook mm. and it just seemed like, you know, a perfect kind of marriage of like growing the food and eating the food and preserving the food. And, and from the beginning, you know, we always made sure that we made time for that. Cause I know it can get, you know, it can get very hectic and it's mm -hmm. easy to just like grab a pizza or something, but, um, really wanted to homestead as much as possible in addition to you know making a living doing this so when did the fermentation facility come on board well so we we wrote a you know plan at the beginning when we met as to what we were we're, we're looking to do you know a holistic management plan for the farm and value added was one of the things on there and we didn't really know what that would be. And it was like 2013 maybe. So it was like 10 years in or so. Uh, we were talking about it some more when we spent so much time in those first 10 years building the life in the soil that we thought our value added product should reflect that. You know, I'd done enough boiling water and canning stuff in the kitchen to know I really didn't want to spend all that energy on making a value added product. It was just kind of a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of energy and, and hot work and so we decided that fermenting would be the way to go and so we started to uh, delve into that um you know Rebecca said we you know did a lot of work on the rebuilding or repairing stuff for the first 10 years so then the next 10 years we've been doing more new infrastructure you know we we built a equipment barn or had one built so we were able to move everything out of our main barn and then that part of the barn we um, kind of completely redid and that's our fermentation kitchen. And uh, we had to get, you know, go through, we had to get it certified with the county as far as the waste disposal. And then we had to write a HACCP plan as an assessment critical control point to um, allow us to do fermented vegetables. Cause mm -hmm. you know, they sit out, if, if you ever gone through food safety you know, nothing can sit out that you've prepared for more than four hours mm -hmm. and ferments sit out at room temperature for up to a month. Mm -hmm. So they were um, not aware of what all that meant. And so that, that took a lot of work to uh, write the HESA plan and, and get our certifications, but um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's been a great journey. This is our, uh, I guess our, first year we were really selling them was like 2014. So been doing it for seven years and continues to grow. And 
yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about your stoveless kitchen. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's one of those things that a realization that you have once you start doing something, you know, you know, we bought a really nice table. We realized we're going to do a lot of chopping. And after uh, a year or so, it was like, yeah, you know, we have a kitchen without a stove, you know, which was one of the things that we were thinking about at the beginning was we didn't want to have to um, boil water. And all this happens at room temperature. So we could take, you know, cabbage or whatever out of the cooler, process it in the kitchen, have it be in the kitchen at the same temperature that people are comfortable and then put it back in the cooler. So, you know, it seemed like a good flow also. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, uh, we're, you know, we're looking at other things, you know, like we said, we're expanded um, into some fruits and, 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 you know, native fruits and things. And so we're just always looking now for things that we can do um, fermenting of, you mm-hmm. know, what we grow. So what would you say the most popular uh, uh, ferments for you right now are? We have uh, uh, a lot of our ferments, they're traditional. So it's like, we can't take credit for the recipes. Mm. Um, there's one called Jalapeno and Escabeche. It's probably the one that is uh, asked for the most. It's uh, jalapeno, carrot, and onion with uh, garlic and some oregano mm. and bay. And it's, it is, it's, it's, uh, well, what we like about it, for one is the flavor and the other is that everything in the jar, but the salt is raised on the farm. Mm-hmm. So we uh, try to uh, make it kind of known that we're more like a winery or a dairy and that we, uh, we have a farm. We put a lot of time into the quality of our soil and soil building. We raise a crop. We preserve it by fermentation on the farm. Mm-hmm. And when you taste it, it reflects our farm. You know, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's a, so that's what we're, we're trying to show. And we hope that more farms kind of start thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So then that's, what's the flavor profile? Is that really super hot with the jalapeno or is it more the jalapenos dialed back? So the more the carrot and onions for the feature. Yeah, we core the jalapenos. Okay. So there, uh, there's just a lot of flavor in there. It's hot, but it's not yeah. going to stay with you all day. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, all right. So then you get the ferment side. So has the, what people have wanted changed over the years since you're doing it from 2014, or has it just been pretty consistent? As far as like the type of products? Yes. Or... Like, yeah. The specific things that you produce. Yeah, we have, you know, we started out with like just kimchi and sauerkraut um, and maybe some radish pickles. Now we have like 10, nine or 10 different items. We made a hot sauce. Mm-hmm. We decided we're, when the jalapeno grow really well, we kind of have more than we can handle to make escabeche. So we um, make a hot sauce out of that. And we actually use the juice from the ferments as instead of vinegar. So the hot sauce is the same way. Everything in the bottle is raised on the farm. Uh, sauerkraut has always been something we do. You know, we have three types of kimchi. Curtido, which you may be familiar with, which is um, an El Salvadoran um, recipe. And, you know, it's mainly cabbage and then some daikon pickles. Oh, and beet relish. So it's, we've just focused on what it is we're actually able to grow. 
mm-hmm. and make recipes based on those. Mm. So the hot sauce um, that you said, mainly jalapeno. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we had a, a batch of escabeche that um, um, it, uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't the quality we wanted. So I kind of uh, pureed it to try and make mm. a hot sauce. And then, okay. you know, like Rebecca and I kind of was like, oh, what's this? And she, you know, it's like, oh, it's not hot enough. Okay. So then we used the jalapenos with the membrane and the seed in it. And we kind of made the same thing. And it was like, yeah, this is a hot sauce. Okay. So, you know, that's just kind of the way some of the, the uh, items come about. Like I say, we consider, you know, a lot of what we do, the recipe is an art, you know, kimchi. We didn't come up with the idea of Napa and ginger mm-hmm. and garlic. Um, we're more of the craft of it where you're trying to perfect it and we're, trying to have it be based on ingredients that we're able to raise here in Northeast or Northwest Missouri and kind mm-hmm. of show that what the soil can actually produce as far as flavor and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've tried doing some hot sauces here and I just wasn't crazy about the flavor. Um, I felt like it was, I don't know, maybe more metallic. It just felt, uh-huh. didn't have the depth I wanted. And we did a, brine ferment so i think they told us next time well i have a friend that does a lot of ferments he said to do more of a a mash he said that was going to be a better quality flavor that's what he said Uh, Uh uh-huh but yeah yeah anyway yeah peppers can have that metallic we don't ferment sweet peppers we definitely get that out of a sweet pepper but jalapenos they they ferment well and uh yeah so that's the hottest one we do too we don't grow habaneros or anything like that yeah Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, we did some uh, a few ghost peppers this year just for the fun of it. And uh, anyway, they're just interesting. Uh, yeah. All right, so share a little bit about the growing practices. We kind of dived into the the processing there a bit, but talk about you know before you process, you have to grow the crop. So kind of share what your you know philosophy is around the production. Sure, I guess I can cover this part. I'm kind of in charge of production. Um, we, you know, we work together for sure. And there's a lot of back and forth on that. And, but Tom's now like in the kitchen a lot. So I'm, I'm heading the field crew many days. So, you know, one thing is our soil type really plays into what we do out in the field. Um, you know, we're on rolling hills here in um, the Lust Plateau. It's like kind of Southern Iowa almost, um, if you're familiar with Iowa soils. Uh-huh but not as deep. <laughs> we're, we're almost to the Missouri River. Um, so we are glaciated. So we have pretty good topsoil, but it's not as deep as it probably was, you know, pre-European contact. I think there was a lot of erosion that happened on this farm. Um, our best soil is down in the mm-hmm. bottom of the fields, <laughs> the top of the fields, um, not so much. Um, and we have a clay subsoil. So that's challenging for vegetable growing. Uh Um, We have a really good subsoil for making a pond. So actually we irrigate out of a large pond that we built. Um, So as far as, yeah. You've got topsoil, then it goes Mm -hmm. straight into clay. And Mm -hmm. it's probably a pretty, is it a pretty high magnesium clay? Um. If it's good I, for making ponds, I, then it probably yeah, is. I guess. Yeah. I guess I don't. I did not build the pond myself, so it's okay. kind of beyond my knowledge there. But um, 
we had a pond built. Uh, okay. And um, yeah, we're sitting on, you know, limestone bedrock. Um, gotcha. So, you know, we have very fertile soil, um, but we do have challenges in big rain events where we get ponding. And so mm -hmm. it, it took us a long time to kind of figure out how to work with that. I mean, we definitely make raised beds and, and do things to um, improve organic matter, like tons of cover cropping and compost applications and, um, and uh, you know, but it really wasn't until we came across uh, Mark Shepard's books uh -huh. um restoration ag and water for any farm um and we actually heard him speak uh where we really started to feel like there might be a solution um with the berms and swales and the subsoiling work um and the master line uh practices so so that's actually what we've done the last starting in 2020 and it has made a huge difference in um, the productivity of our system um, and our fields after big rain events. So um, anyway, but but typically, you know, we're we're growing in a pretty traditional organic farming way of like cover cropping before or after a crop, adding compost, um, making raised beds, mulching. We use a lot of hay mulch. Um, you know, we plant a lot of pollinator habitat. Um, and we also, I think in 2013, somewhere around, now well, Tom could refresh my memory, but we've, we've incorporated laying hens into our rotation for oh. quite a number of years. And that has helped a lot with fertility mm -hmm. issues and just overall soil health um, to get the livestock rotation in there. Um, so that's part of what we're doing is we're, we, you know, we have a flock of about 70 laying hens and they move through the farm um, often after harvest. So behind whatever crops <laughs> coming out. Um, and of course, you know, we practice all the good food safety stuff around that and the 120 day rule of, you know, making sure we're not harvesting anything too soon after, you know, chickens have been in an area. Mm -hmm. um, but we really have made a dramatic in improvement to our, our farm uh, fertility. I mean, even though we were adding lots of compost and planting lots of cover crops, it really didn't feel like things really started thriving until the chickens were, were brought in. Um, and now we have sheep. So now we're starting to add another layer of complexity where we're having the sheep go through and then the chickens following them. Um, so, but yeah, there's, it, it's like a, there's so much to learn around, um, like the farm as an ecosystem uh -huh. and that's what we're trying to go towards is, um, making sure we have all the players involved that would, you know, mimic the natural system of how, you know, no one's having to spread compost around all the plants that are growing out in the forest. You know, there's a closed loop system. And if we can mimic that, um, that's our goal. Mm -hmm. So what percentage of your crops are ending up in a ferment compared to what percentage are going to a market? 
So that changed this year. Um, 2021 was our last year with the veggie CSA. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was a big, big change. <laughs> um, it was a really hard decision to make, but um, we felt like the point we were in our lives and also with the farm and where we wanted to go with it, we just needed more time to look into these other um, projects, basically, of like incorporating the sheep and planting the perennials um, and not having necessarily enough vegetables to supply a CSA every week anymore. Um, so we, yeah, so this year is the first year where we're just doing the ferments. So we're just growing um, enough crops to go for, to the kitchen. Um, we do go to market every Saturday. So if we have excess of something, we take it to market and we do okay. have like a little wholesale account that we can sometimes sell produce if we have extra, but really we're trying to focus on the fermentation business and, um, and then getting these other kind of, you know, things that aren't paying the bills at all, but, you know, getting them established. Like, you know, we planted all these hundreds of chestnut trees and things you were talking about. Um, we did get help through Equip, you mm -hmm. know, NRCS Equip Agroforestry um, grant. So partially it was paid for through that, but it's still like right now we're trying to make sure they have water because it's the first year and it's been kind of dry here. So there's definitely some, you know, labor involved in just getting them established. And then, you know, we should have um, less work in them over the long term. But, um, but yeah, everything's going into the kitchen. Yeah, it's like we started a new farm, you know, Talia, first five years of farming, you, it, it, uh, you're kind of seeing, you know, what you can do and there's a certain amount of excitement about it. We're kind of there right now because, um, yeah, we're actually only, we're down to only like one acre that we're planting crops to where we used to have three or four for the CSA. So there's all sorts of things kind of going on that we're trying to evaluate this year you know we're basically wholesaling to ourselves. so mm -hmm. the idea of you know not handpicking you know beans and bagging them and taking the time to do that but instead we harvest cabbage put them in a crate and put them in the cooler and our farming work is done we've sold our product already um to, you know to ourselves we're trying to see what all that really means you know, it sounds like it'll be a real benefit. And, you know, we think it is. There's less time just handling stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to find out. But it's nice only having an acre, you know. There's always too much to do. And so, you know, we're always trying to make sure we can actually handle what we what we want to do. Gotcha. Um, what is your Talk about your, your team. Um, how many people are on the farm? Yeah, we have uh, a bunch of folks, but a lot of them are part-timers. Um, we're, you know, kind of a rural area. So a lot of people drive from the city. We've got a couple of local people um, that come, you know, maybe 30 hours a week. I think if you added it all up, we might have the equivalent of um, two, two and a half full-time people in addition to the two of us. So it's a pretty small crew. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and that fluctuates, you know, there's definitely more people here in the summer than in the winter. Although with the kitchen, um, one of the benefits of having a value added operation that, you know, can go on year round. Um, so we have work for people year round and it's not just seasonal work. Um, and uh, we, you know, the crew is great. Um, some of them have culinary background, some have agricultural background and um, a lot of them, most, most folks are helping us in the field sometimes and sometimes in the kitchen, depending on what we need to do. Um, so that's really nice to have that flexibility or, you know, maybe the weather's not conducive to working outside or the weather's really conducive to planting like a lot of stuff in the spring and everybody can participate in that. Um, so that, yeah, the kitchen work has really been nice for the farm to just have that flexibility of like always having something that we can be working on no matter what the weather's doing. Um, we've had some pretty hot summers and uh, it's not bad to go into the kitchen in the afternoon in the air conditioning and uh -huh. uh, chop some vegetables. So um, yeah, we couldn't do it without the crew for sure. Now, you said chopping vegetables. Is that all knife chopping? Do you have any machines in there that kind of help with that process? Yeah, so we've kind of grown with our machinery uh, and realized the importance of it. We just purchased a... Uh, it's called a RoboCoup, one of a one of the larger kind of um, you know more commercial models, and you know like with the sauerkraut, we used to have this hand crank cutter mm -hmm. uh, that seemed like you know it was perfect when we first started, and now it's just uh, it's too clunky, and you know you start to realize that something might cost some money. You know, it's nice when you finally have a business, it's like, well, I can actually invest and mm -hmm. I will save money because it will take people less time and they will be happier because they're not, you know, chopping all day long. So we're trying to do that for uh, the sake of the worker and for the sake of consistency and for the sake of safety. Um, so yeah, we've definitely progressed on that end, but some of it, you know, there's still a decent amount of, you know, you have to clean the vegetables before you put them into a, piece of equipment and you know when uh you know organic farming we're trying to use everything you know sometimes you spend time kind of cleaning the vegetables up but i don't know it's uh it's just a wonderful thing to have to do a lot of times you know i've, I've gotten to where napa cabbage is one of my favorite vegetables it's one of those things that tell people it's like you know one of those eggs that you just keep opening and there's another little egg inside of it you just keep peeling back the leaves and it's like a little clone of itself and you know it's like a fractal mm -hmm. and you get down to the point where it might even be um bolting and there's like these like half inch they almost look like perfect little napa cabbages you know in the nodes of the the flowers and uh, so you see kind of see more of your you know what you're growing so it's nice too um and I, I don't know, I guess while I'm on that, you know, the one thing that the other, one of the other reasons we decided to do the fermenting was, you know, we wanted to, you know, delve more into the whole connection between, you know, our lives and the soil. And the more we do it, realize that the life in the soil is the source of the life in our ferments. And then the life in the ferments, it's 
it's running through our bodies right now. You know, our digestive system, um, you know, um, Radio Lay, I'm sure you're familiar with, they had a, a podcast called Guts and they kind of talked mm-hmm. about this. How it's really, you know, it's a tract. It's actually a hole that runs through our body. We're more like a donut. You know, our inside is really our outside. Our digestive system, you know, it stays away from our organs and it's um, uh, our, our like colon. There's a, um, like a film on the inside that kind of protects our, our uh, animal, t- you know, our tissue from, from what's going through uh, our digestive system. And it's almost the same as the exudates on, the, on a, a root hair of a plant where it's the same thing. That's where all the transfer takes place. And we're just really starting to see more of the connection between soil health and gut health. And um, another thing is that, you know, like I, our, my doctor, you know, said, oh, you know, your uh, stomach's your second brain. You know, people are starting to realize that how much your, your digestive system controls all sorts of parts of your um your physiology and your body. And it's like, well, maybe the, the uh, lactobacillus are kind of telling us to talk about them, you know? Mm. I've heard of, you know, crazier ideas in this. And uh, so it, it's, it's a, you know, it's a new field and people are learning more about it. And it's really great to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, so the other thing I like about fermenting is crops don't have to be, again, quite as pretty as maybe the stuff that goes to a market. Mm-hmm. It allows you to just use those things that may be a little bit weirder or, you know, not, mm-hmm. as you said, a little bit bolted or something like that, which, so, um, that's mm-hmm. always nice to have that. Uh, it allows you to be more efficient with the crop and use more. Cause that's one of the things that, again, as a, as a farm that's producing high quality veg going out, you know, every week we fill a IBC tote cut off in half with, you know, junk, whether uh-huh. it be stuff that's, you know, yeah. So having that ferment, uh, allows you to use the crop more efficiently. It yeah, does. We had uh, CSA members that were from Korea and we would, you know, be harvesting with our members and, you know, cleaning the vegetables up in the field, you know, um, and they would always want to take all the stuff Mm. that we were leaving behind, like, you know, and take it home and make kimchi with it, you know, and they would use all kinds of vegetables, you know, to make kimchi, not just, you know, Napa, but um it really is a, um, you know, food waste is a huge issue. And I think, you know, it's a, there's a human society for millennia knew how to use every part of the animal, every part of the vegetable. And we've just kind of lost that. And uh, of course we're not using, you know, rotten stuff in our product. I don't want to give that, you know, mm-hmm. thought mm-hmm. out there, but but, you know, taking stuff from the field, getting it, you know, packaged properly so it will hold in the cooler and then taking it to the kitchen. And yeah, it, um, it definitely cuts down on food waste. And, you know, I think as an organic farm that's, you know, growing crops on kind of a, in a challenging climate and our climate's going to get more challenging, um, you know, they aren't always perfectly you know sometimes there's a little bug hole or you know some little bit of you know issue with sun damage or you Mm -hmm. know whatever it is and and you know 
that's perfectly usable in anybody's home. But I think we've gotten to this stage in our society where any blemish is um, not acceptable. So, it, you know, going to farmer's market with, with crops, you know, they just have to, you know, this whole display and everything is mm-hmm. beautiful. And, you know, I love seeing a beautiful farmer's market display, but, you know, as a society, we do need to figure out ways to be more efficient and sustainable in our food production. And yeah, absolutely. Like having a commercial kitchen on the farm allows you to use a lot of those seconds that would otherwise, you know, just, you know, the farmers eat those, but you know, sometimes you got more than the farmers can eat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the business side of the farm. So you guys have the, the, the different tasks of the business side split up. Does one of you do something or the other? Or do you kind of both attack the, you know, the books or the, the training and the, that side of things together? Well, I used to do most of the bill paying and, and the likes and Rebecca's taking over a lot of that part of it. Um, you know, we, um, so finance wise, you know, it's like when we had the CSA, we, you know, we had a good thing going there for quite some time where we, you know, we have good income, we could pay ourselves, we could have money to invest into the future. But when we moved here to the, uh, um, ferments, we've invested a lot. So right now we're in that, like I said, like that five-year period where we're trying to build a business and we put a lot of money into the infrastructure and, you know, we see our sales growing, which is nice. Um, And so we're on, you know, we're looking to be on a trajectory to have the finances just continue to improve at this point. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, so let's talk about like, uh, so at the beginning, you talked about investing a lot for the first couple of years. Do you feel like now you're at a point where you don't really need any more, um, infrastructure? I think we're pretty close at this point that we have enough to kind of show what we can do, um, between the kitchen and the equipment barn and, um, the, work that we did with the perennials and everything, you know, we're, it's, it's a matter of action now mm. and not, not quite as much investment. And part of our investment has had to be in explaining to people that, you know, what we have, it's not a sterile, you know, um, shelf stable canned good. Mm-hmm. It's a craft live culture ferment that has all sorts of health benefits that, you know, we sequestered carbon in producing it. It has all sorts of environmental benefits. Um, it's local, it's vegetarian, it's vegan, you know, with all these things about it so that we, you know, cause we have more supply than demand at the moment. And, mm. and it's cause it's not, uh, it's uncommon um, in the marketplace, you know, have a local farm be selling ferments. Yeah. Hey, thriving farmers. Do you know that you are already standing on the key to bigger yields and better profits to help maximize your yield and profit potential? Look beyond the standard fertility options. Choose ultra by AgriGrow. Ultra is an army listed soil prebiotic technology designed to develop the native microorganisms in your soil. AgriGrow's prebiotic technologies are engineered with the users in mind. 
Ultra is easy to use and has great tank mixing abilities that won't clog or mess up sprayers or injectors. It also does not require refrigeration like many other probiotic formulas available on the market. In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow. At first, I was a skeptic, but I was able to check out their production facility and meet the owners and staff. This company is great. Over the last year and a half, I've run several different trials using their products and I'm really impressed with the results that I see. I've seen my soil texture improve during cultivation. I've seen decade-old heirloom corn germinate for the first time. My $6 cost of Ultra boosted my strawberry fields dramatically. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all thriving farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out at smallfarm.solutions. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for a 10% off discount on your first order. So then what is your, let's talk marketing. What's your marketing plan? How does that work and how are you getting the word out? A lot of um, word of mouth and suggestions from people and going out and talking and doing tastings. You know, tastings are the biggest thing. When somebody can taste our product, you know, they, they're immediately you know, aware that there is quality there and what we're talking about is mm-hmm. true. So that's a big part of it. Um, we have more wholesale accounts now that we're moving into, you know, COVID was uh, kind of stopped tastings altogether for a while. So we kind of had a stall there and we kind of lost some um, customers and we're working on um, getting reconnected with a lot of people and we're just, uh, every chance we have, we're trying to explain the benefits of the live culture food and um, like I'm doing, you know, that's what I appreciate about what, you know, today that we can talk about this, that it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, it's a high quality product and just has a lot of benefits for a lot of different reasons. And it, you know, it deserves a good value. Um, and that's the other thing. It's just a matter of people kind of readjusting their values, I feel. Yeah, yeah. If you were able to start the farm over again, what what would you change? What would you do different the first time? Well, I think we would have put in the the whole master line system day one, or, you know, mm. at least early on. Um, it's really made a huge difference. Um, we finally feel like we're growing crops on this piece of land the way they should be grown. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it just took us a lot of head scratching and trying to figure out, trying different things. And um, I really recommend if people, you know, I mean, it worked for our farm. I'm not saying it works for everybody's farm, but, um, you know, if you have rolling hills, you know, if you're not on a flat, well-drained creek bottom soil, we learned from people that were on flat creek bottom Mm -hmm. soil and uh you know they were doing an amazing job growing vegetables and we knew that our farm was different but we we it took us a long time to find the right system for us um so you know it's been a real real change um for the better for us and um, it wasn't that hard to do. We did it ourselves with like a little two bottom plow. Mm-hmm. You know, we did one that we didn't like. So we smoothed it out and we did it. You know, I mean, it's not, you don't need to hire somebody to come in and, you know. So did you basically set your topo lines with a um, 
with a uh, like a, a laser level and then do that, or is it more like, man, this looks about what the this should be? Yeah. So yeah, it was. Um, so yeah, I used to actually be a civil engineer. I wasn't a surveyor or anything, but um, kind of has a background, so that helped. So when Breck and I went and saw Mark Shepard, and we've been talking about all this, uh, I was able to help us kind of apply what he was talking about. And the mm -hmm. other nice thing was that we got a LIDAR map from USDA with two foot contours on it mm -hmm. of, of our farm. And so if you have that, you can lay your whole system out um, ahead of time, like on the map. Um, so with the master line, yeah, we had, it was actually an indoor level, but it was a laser level. And so you set your master line and you have it slope 1% towards the ridges. And so we laid that out and then uh, it, we do alley cropping. So everything else is just 40 feet off of that. So we have 40 foot alleys. So really it's only about one line that you really need the laser level for, or at least that we used it for. And the rest was just measuring off of that line. And then um, another thing that's really kind of uh, interesting is that it's like the week that we started was the week of the lockdown. So uh -huh. we like had a lot to do, a lot to do. We were um, really occupied in our minds for that whole time. So uh, that's, that's when we started. And, you know, we did a lot of uh, seeding, you know, you got to get the berms and everything seeded properly. And all our beds were kind of laid out more in a grid like Rebecca was saying, like we were on flat ground uh, and I had like a little toy drone um, that blew away in the wind. And then later we realized we really needed something else to kind of show what we were doing. Cause wow. you know, you overlay this on this, your old, it's like, you know, it was hard to tell, you know, where, place where things were anymore and now like the, everything that we had in the past is pretty much completely erased mm. so it's just been really cool to watch this system you know grow up for a couple of years and knowing that a lot more is even going to happen like Rebecca said you know would recommend it to anybody who has um slopey ground mm-hmm so yeah, because we're on flat ground, so it's one of the reasons we picked the farm we did. But um, I have farmed plenty of hilly ground, and you think the forty feet is kind of like the—is that a magic number, or just for your farm it seemed to work? Yeah, I think it works for our farm. You know, we're a small vegetable farm. You know, you see terraces out here, and they're spaced much farther apart for row crops. Mm -hmm. um, we would have like we have like five, five and a half foot. Well, five foot beds with, you know, one foot alley or pass on either, either side. And so that's like a block. You get about five beds and we're trying to keep everything kind of human scale. And so that's, you know, it's, it's really kind of a nice width for things. And you can put a um, movable chicken trailer in there and you end up with like about 120 foot long uh, bed and that's kind of what we're, we're going towards right now. You know, our vegetable growing areas are on like the straightaways mm -hmm. uh, and everything that 
is for the most part on a 1% um, slope. So we're getting more consistency right now with our vegetable growing. And that's really kind of one of the big things. We never really had consistency like we wanted. And so that was kind of a, a goal of ours. And we think we're achieving that with this system too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say the, um, you would go back and tell your new farmer selves if like you could go back and you know, give you some words of advice? <laughs> oh we we did pretty good i don't know like if we had known everything that we had to do uh the first year you know maybe it's better not to know how much work is ahead of you okay <laughs> you know like but as far as i mean what to tell what do you think tom um i don't know i mean you know like rebecca said if we would have known more about the possibility of master lining the farm, you know, that would have been a good place to start. But we've just tried to inch forward all the time. And we feel like we're, we've, um, we haven't really gone backwards. So we feel good about that. And it's taken us 20 years to get here. And that's kind of what it takes if you're a small farm and you're doing a lot of it on your own. And uh, um, we were lucky, you know, we met up in the Northeast and, you know, holistic farm management was, um, what Liz Anderson kind of taught, taught us. And, you know, we go to NOFA conferences. I mean, those people, the farmers mm -hmm. there, they've been doing what we're talking about now for 20, 30 years already at that point in time. And so we were lucky that we, I think we went into it um, knowing all that. And, you know, we had, you, you farm on the land that you, you have. And so, um, I don't know how much we really would have done different. Um, well, I think it, we, yeah, we, we did think, um, that, that plastic deer fence was a good idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> that right. stuff is ridiculous. Don't uh -oh. ever buy. Oh, sorry. Maybe that's a sponsor. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, but if there are, we'll be interested in talking. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Our deer are especially feisty or something, and they just throw their bodies at it, and it just splits in two, and they come right in. So, so uh, what have you gotten to more of a metal system, eight foot tall, you know, spikes yeah. on top? <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, we, um, Tom, you maybe can, I don't know, we found this mm -hmm. um, metal fencing that costs about the same, the shipping is more, but it wasn't that much more than like the plastic stuff. So we're like, why didn't we, maybe mm -hmm. it wasn't available 20 years ago, but mm. um, yeah. Right. The, sh the shipping does make it expensive, but we're trying to put that up. And then another thing we've done is, um, we split our fields in two and we have a wildlife corridor going through the middle of them. So Interesting. there's uh, like water sources in a state park on one side of our farm. And then there's a, a creek on the other side. And, you know, you know, Rebe Rebecca, you know, she's just except things I don't really know. So it's like, well, they're coming from there, going to there. And they're, let's make a path right through the middle oh, to make it easier okay. on them. And, we got a wildlife cam in there and trail cam. And so, yeah, it, it helps take the pressure off, especially. Um, we still need the fencing and, 
you know, but it's given us, I feel a little more time to, to, to finance putting the metal up everywhere. Mm -hmm. And no, the, the wildlife corridor, uh, it's just, you know, trail cams, all this modern stuff is just, you know, really nice to have, you know, we see the, the deer, the coyotes, the bobcats, you know, all the different things that, that live around here and kind of some of them, I think, consider our farm a little bit of an oasis. Um, yeah, it kinda, it's like you kind of get to know them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you say the biggest mistake you see beginning farmers make is? That's a toughie. I don't know. I mean, I, I we, maybe we don't get out enough. Tom, you get to more meetings than <laughs> I do, but I just pretty much stay at the farm. I don't know that many beginning farmers. Um, we have our, our workers out here and we have some farmers that we, you know, have as kind of our network, but, um, I think that's really hard to say because everybody's farm is so different and everybody's personality is different. Like if you are willing to start a farm and do all of the work that that entails and you think it, you should do it a certain way, like who am I to tell you to do it differently, really? Um, but I, I mean, I see the biggest problem being like, there aren't enough beginning farmers. Like mm. um, nobody has the capital one to buy farms or two to get all the equipment and get things set up so that they can actually produce. I mean, that's, an, that's a generalization of course, but that's been our experience of like the people we know in our community that, you know, would like to have a farm or start a farm. Um, our, you know, land prices are outrageous and, you know, I think that's, the, <laughs> yeah. that's more of the issue than, I mean, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to start a farm and be successful for sure. It takes somebody who's kind of insane at some level, <laughs> like that they, you know, will just sacrifice a lot of their, you know, other parts of their life to start a business from scratch and mm. you know I well, mean it's a, it's a it's a ton of work and yeah and, yeah and and it's very um rewarding work but it does take a little bit of like passion right mm. or mm -hmm. and um and you know just hard work and willing to like you know get shit done and just you know do what needs to be done at that moment and um you know if if people are doing that I don't I'm not gonna like tell them they're doing it wrong I don't know I think one thing too you know there's different ways of starting farms you know we're um we're here because this was you know Rebecca's family's farm and the idea was to, you know, that you could come back to the farm and do something. A lot of people don't even have that mm -hmm. opportunity, but there are people that do. And it's like, you know, one thing is too bad that more people don't do that. We are starting to see a little more of it um, these days. Like at our farmer's market, Brookside Farmer's Market, we're the only like all organic market in Kansas City. Uh, there's some farmers, there's one that we've met this year that joined that um 
he's farming on their family land. He was telling the story about he, he and his grandfather were sitting there one day on the porch watching their terraces erode away from a heavy rain because they weren't, oh you know, covered. And, yeah. you know, he's, he's in his like thirties or something. He's like, he's, he has like, he's allergic to Roundup to boot. So he's like, you know, we gotta do things a different way. And now they have chestnut trees that they planted on the terraces and they're, um, you know, they have perennial grasses on them, flock of 300 sheep and just looking at, you know, more regenerative ways to farm the family land. And so I think if you have family land, um, uh, it, you know, more people should take advantage of that. They got to, how else is like the farm landscape going to change like out in the rural areas at least? So, well, yeah. So often it's, let's, I mean, let's say you live in, in New York City or DC or on the West Coast and you have family mm -hmm. land and let's say the parents die and now their land's there. I mean, do you go home and far, farming the land or do you just take it as a, a cash lease, which is unfortunately a lot of times what they're doing because it's the easy th way out. Right. Yeah. Right. And like yeah. Rebecca said, you know, not trying to tell people what to, to yeah. do, but you know, if, you know, I, I was, I'm biased. I was an environmental engineer for 20 years and, you know, environmental was the first word in the name of what I was, you know, my profession, but it wasn't very environmental and um, I care about it a lot. And that's why, you know, I'm here with Rebecca and I feel that if people really and truly understand, you know, the, the stress that the environment's under and if they own family farmland that they can do something you know i, I would hope more people will do that mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um what brings you joy about your farm <laughs> you want to go first or <laughs> <laughs> sure i enjoy it all i do like especially just working outside hearing the birds and whatever nature is out there coming across, you know, some interesting caterpillar or butterfly or whatever it is, digging up something in the soil and uh -huh. what is that? Um, I love learning about the natural world and, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful office, right? I mean, it's the best office and, um, of course, it's hot and sweaty and dirty and, you know, you get bit by things and stung and poison ivy and, you know, uh, mosquito bites and all that stuff, too. Um, but if you can get past that and you can train your mind to, like, be calm and, like, it's okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Really, the majority of, of what goes on during our days is really beautiful. And um, we were so fortunate to be able to do this for a living. Um, so yeah. 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 I, I tell people sometimes, you know, I get to wake up on an organic farm every morning. And like when I had an office job, that would have been like a dream to be able to do that. And now I can do it. And just the other thing is I, you know, I enjoy cooking and eating and I live in a surplus of garlic and onions and cabbage and all these things and have access to an organic farmer's market every week when we go in and I don't know how 
you know, the, the food we eat, nutrition we get could, uh, could be any better. And I don't know, I do find a lot of joy in cooking and to have ingredients that you grew yourself. I mean, that's just adds to it. Yeah, absolutely. What's your favorite tool on the farm? Well, I, I mean, you know, we use a lot of different tools. I, I guess, I mean, but you know, at, at some level, like I just really like using my hands. I mean, not that I don't use hose and, you know, we have stirrup hose. We use those a lot or, you know, your standard like hot weeder, like little hand weeders when we're weeding. Um, drive our workhorse everywhere. I, I think the workhorse might be my favorite tool. It's our little electric um, golf cart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we used to have like a big beater of a like f-150 pickup truck that was always running out of gas because it wasn't roadworthy like yeah, it yeah. Fill the tank so we were always like getting little five gallon things and keeping it running and it was just a beast and stinky and um and then it finally died and and um we got this little golf cart and it's so perfect like why why didn't we, that's what I would tell beginning farmers, get a golf cart, get a little electric golf cart. You can just plug it in. It's quiet. Well, te- technically it's a, a electric utility vehicle. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <laughs> it's got a dump, it's got a dump, a uh, little dump. Uh, yeah, true. Trailer on the attached to it or, okay. you know, the back is like that. So it's really handy. It's a dump bed. Yeah. Dump the bed. bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's actually the workhorse brand. It's um what a easy go, you know, it's like oh, the golf okay. cart yep. brand, but yep, yep. we were like, oh, you know, you always name your vehicles, would it? You know, printed right on the back. It's like workhorse. It's like, okay, we'll call it the workhorse. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we used to have we don't yet at our new farm, but we had our old farm, we had three golf courts at one point. Um, yeah, they're just so good. Those are just so good. We're happy too that, you know, it's an electric vehicle. We converted an Alice Chalmers G um, in like 08. So it's electric. We have a solar powered irrigation system we've had since around that same time. Um, we were able to get a, a, a REAP grant through USDA to help pay for solar panels, 20 KW system. We ended up getting uh, installed in um, early 2020. And so we feel really good. You know, we're, we, we look really hard at all our, um, our carbon, you know, balance. Mm -hmm. We've raised the organic matter on our farm from about two and a half to about four and a half over time, you know, at the same time that we're taking vegetables off the land. And, uh, so we've sequestered carbon there and then we've neutralized our carbon a lot through all these um, electric vehicles and uh, generating electricity on the farm with solar. So those are all nice tools. Mm-hmm. You know, the you don't have to stand in line for the sun, so it's nice to be able to utilize it. That's what agriculture is all about, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you both coming on and sharing this. And you'll be joining us uh, for the summit. Um, 
Yes. If that's that's correct. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom, you'll be joining us for the summit here coming up in December. Super excited for you to share about the fermentation side and how you make that all work. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to have you come back and share then, but until then, um, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca and Tom. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.